Welcome back to the Lamp Post Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is chapter 12 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Peter's First Battle. Welcome back, Phil. Thanks. This is what, the third time we've now recorded this intro? We, guys, we're off to a rough start, so, so bear with us today. But it's an, it's an excellent day so far. It is a wonderful day to talk about Narnia. Not that it matters to any of our listeners because they're not listening to it the day we record this, but it is, it's a beautiful summer day. It's raining outside. It's the perfect time, uh, perfect mood to travel to a imaginary land. Is that how you feel? That's exactly how I feel. I got lost rereading the chapter again. <laughs> It, it felt I had like the windows open. It, it's pretty cool outside. Listening as I was rereading the chapter, like listening to the rain fall down. Uh, I even this is, I'm gonna go super nerdy right here. I had some of the Narnia soundtrack music on in the background. I mean, it was literally it was it, it's been a great morning for me. So let's let's go ahead and jump into episode twelve. But 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 even before we do that, we've got to talk about where we left off. So. Chapter 11 left off with Spring coming to Narnia, and Edmund had really begun regretting his betrayal. Do you have a chapter summary for us, though, for this upcoming chapter? I sure do. All right. You want any other things before we take it away? Uh, I think I'll bring this up a little bit later, but I was reading the Narnia Code by Michael Ward, and I think I have a little more perspective on why Lewis includes so many different varieties of um, mythology. And we haven't talked at all about the Narnia Code on the show, have we? We have not. I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with it. Um, but yeah, I, I'd love, I think you just said you're reading it, right? Well, yes, but I think I'm going to stop reading it because it's spoiling things. <laughs> Bro, yeah. Uh, we'll, I, we'll talk about that when we get to the, um, the part of the chapter where Aslan is standing around with his group. Yeah. All right, man, we'll take it away. All right. The children are admiring Spring, walking at a slower pace now that they realize the Queen won't be able to catch them on her sledge when they arrive at the sea. Aslan is there, along with a group of forest dwellers. He informs them that something can and will be done about Edmund. After asking that a feast be prepared, Aslan shows Peter Care Paravel of the Four Thrones, where Peter and his siblings will sit as royalty. Suddenly, though, they are alerted that Lucy and Susan are in trouble. Aslan indicates that Peter is up, and sends him toward the attacking wolf. When the wolf turns to Peter, he plunges his sword into its heart. Upon realizing that another wolf is running back to the White Witch, Aslan sends his team of centaurs and eagles to rescue Edmund and gives Peter basic sword cleaning rules. Nice. I liked it. I can't wait to talk about these basic sword cleaning rules because it's very foreign to me here in the 21st century, but C.S. Lewis makes a pretty big deal out of it, so... Or at least Aslan does, and that's C.S. Lewis talking through him, I think. Um, right. You know, I I think, you know, so, uh, you know, last chapter, I, I said that I wasn't too hot on it. Um, and this, oh man, this is one of my absolute favorite chapters of the book. And I think I've really kind of put, put the pulse on why I enjoy it so much. And why and, is that? And well, so the, the chapter starts off with this, this sentence. While the dwarf and the white witch were saying this, miles away, the beavers and the children were walking on hour after hour into what seemed a delicious dream. And so I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the textual structure of this book. And I was realizing that really here in chapter 12, we are ending the second act of the story. And we're moving into the third act. 
So, and I was kind of like thinking through like, what does that mean? And we've, we've talked a little bit about how we've had this split narrative over the last couple of chapters. And so I was thinking through the structure of the book and I was thinking about the first act, which is all of the you know, Pevens or really Lucy and Edmund discovering the wardrobe and kind of going back and forth between our world and Narnia. I would say the second act starts around chapter six as they all enter Narnia. Chapter eight is Mr. Beaver telling the Pevensies about Narnia and about Aslan while Edmund has slipped off. You know, chapter nine then takes Edmund's perspective. Then for chapter 10, we go back to the the other three siblings as they meet Father Christmas. And then chapter 11, we're back to Edmund as he travels through Narnia as spring is increasingly coming. And again, with this chapter, we don't have any of Edmund's perspective. And with that first sentence, we're literally saying, hey, this is happening concurrently with what just happened in the last chapter. So that at the same time that the dwarf and the white witch are saying all these things about, you know, the witch says, if anyone says Aslan's name, I'm going to kill him on the spot. This is happening for them. And so that second kind of act is this split narrative. And so here is this chapter is really the last part of that as we move back into a singular perspective for the third act. So it kind of returns, and we will go back and forth a little bit, but it won't be entire chapters with just one party of the story. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So that sentence does a great job of doing that because it's like the, um, if this were being filmed, the camera's on the White Witch and the dwarf and Edmund, and it pulls out very fast and then zooms in to another section of Narnia. Yeah, it could be kind of like that. And and then I think what makes this chapter so good is we kind of have the best of both worlds, of what we've gotten from a lot of the chapters, where some of the chapters have been really descriptive and they've been full of a lot of, um, yeah, descriptive language about Narnia. And then other ones like chapter eight, you know, was super dialogue heavy, um, with a lot of exposition about what Narnia is and who Aslan is. And in this chapter, we get we get both. We get long periods of description over Narnia and Ker Paravel and Aslan's camp. But then we get the action of Peter um, fighting Malgrim. We get um, some great dialogue exchanges between Aslan and the children. And it's really kind of all of it. You know, it's kind of like you always get so excited at the end of a story where it's like, oh, the, t- the team's finally getting together. You know, you think of like a superhero movie or um, any kind of like action movie. Like, oh, yes, they're finally all teaming up. And it's not quite there yet, but we're really starting to see it come together. So from there, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, C.S. Lewis is telling us about the Pevensies traveling through Narnia, which is, and he says it goes from January to May in just a few hours, which I think C.S. Lewis does a really good job describing it. And you get a sense that... Although there's still a lot of tension, we've found some kind of peace in the beauty of Narnia now that winter is ending. Do you, do you feel any of that? I do, and they do a great job of just, uh, you feel the hope coming back to Narnia um, as spring comes in as well. And it's not just the fact that it's going from January to May so quickly, it's that they realize that something has gone really wrong for the witch's plans and mm-hmm. what that could mean. So from there, Phil, we had a little part that you were going to read because as they're climbing up this really tall hill, Lucy feels like she, you know, she can't go on any further. And then it says that she finally gets to the top and realizes that they were – or she's like, when are we going to get to the top? Then she realizes, wait, we are at the top. And C.S. Lewis writes, and this is what they saw. Do you want to read what, what he writes there? I sure do. This is so good. They were on a green open space 
from which you could look down on the forest spreading as far as one could see in every direction, except right ahead. There, far to the east, was something twinkling and moving. By gum, whispered Peter to Susan, the sea. In the very middle of this open hilltop was the stone table. It was a great, grim slab of gray stone, supported on four upright stones. It looked very old, and it was cut all over with strange lines and figures that might be the letters of an unknown language. They gave you a curious feeling when you looked at them. The next thing they saw was a pavilion pitched on one side of the open place. A wonderful pavilion it was, and especially now when the light of the setting sun fell upon it, with sides of what looked like yellow silk and cords of crimson and tent pegs of ivory, and high above it on a pole a banner which bore a red, rampant lion fluttering in the breeze which was blowing in their faces from the far-off sea. While they were looking at this, they heard a sound of music on their right, and turning in that direction, they saw what they had come to see. Aslan stood in the center of the crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves round him in the shape of a half-moon. There were tree women and well women, dryads and naiads, as they used to be called in our world, who had stringed instruments. It was they who had made the music. There were four great centaurs. The horse part of them was like huge English farm horses, and the man part was like stern but beautiful giants. There was also a unicorn and a bull with the head of a man, and a pelican, and an eagle, and a great dog. And next to Aslan stood two leopards, of whom one carried his crown, and the other his standard. Wow. That's a really, really great uh, description of what we're seeing here. I mean, it's, it's beautiful, and it's, we've, it's this culmination of what we've been looking forward to since we first learned about this right around chapters 7 and 8. And... It's just, it's, I'm really excited. Like, I'm, I'm literally like, I mean, I know this, this is literally children's literature, but this is just like, for me as an adult, like this still hits, man. Uh, and so it's just beautiful. Yeah. I actually have a thought on that from the Narnia Code. And it's children's literature, I don't think needs to be qualified with like, I know this is children's literature, but because it, it's the most important literature when you're growing up and then it continues to inform how you think about the world and like those stories stay with you. I think childhood's like a really important time. Ooh, you preach it now, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> you, that's good. Yeah, that's you're right. Yeah, and that's good for me too to remember as an educator because I yeah I think sometimes I think of it as being oh it's just like kid stuff. But you're right. This is like this is important and this really does shape us because this is where we learn to love reading. Uh, and that's those are pretty much Michael Ward's Michael Ward's words. <laughs> Gosh, that's do you want to do you want to explain what the Narnia Code is? Because I'm I'm sh- I was not super familiar with it until about a year ago. So I'm sure we might have some listeners who who don't know what it is. So could you kind of explain what the Narnia Code is? Sure. This is um, Michael Ward wrote about C.S. Lewis and the Secret of the Seven Heavens. Is the subtitle of the book. He's a minister from the Church of England, and um, he wrote just to kind of answer a lot of questions that people still had because the series does kind of tend to, it seems like he's Lewis is pulling from all over the place. And the argument here is that Lewis actually knew what he was doing the whole time. Um, and so he kind of breaks down his theory on that. And there are things like the mention of father Christmas and there's just a lot of things that may not make sense right away, but this guy did a lot of research and he thinks that Lewis was very intentional about it. And Remind me, because I haven't read it. I just have heard of it. He makes a connection between each of the seven books and um, 
something to do with like the seven um I guess we wouldn't have called them planets then, but like the seven heavenly bodies that would have been recognized during like the Middle Ages. Am I right there? Is that correct? So I'm not sure, and here's why. I started to read it, and then he kept talking about very big events that happened in books that I haven't gotten to yet. Oh, <laughs> so you like, we're like, I can't keep doing this. I was just like, I was like, I think I'm going to read a little bit more of actual Narnia so that I can then enjoy this. Yeah. Um, but also, I want to go through it. You know, we do read a few chapters ahead, but I want to be surprised by stuff, and I uh-huh. don't want to. I don't want to be reminded of anything that I may have like conveniently forgotten yeah. the past ten, fifteen years. So maybe it's something we can kind of like as we're going along, we can kind of discover not just the books again, but also this book, the Narnian Code, or Narnian Code, or Narnia Code. The Narnia Code. Okay, um, I think that's definitely a really great resource, and I'll put a link down in the description about the book. I've, I've, I've seen a couple of videos about it and it's been really interesting, but I have not actually read any of the, the book itself. And I'm really interested to be like how much, you know, how much of this really does line up because I'm not very familiar with it. Right. And, th- you know, this is the kind of thing that's right up our alley. I don't know if you ever read like books about Harry Potter when Harry Potter was still coming out, but uh-huh. it's really fun when other people have theories or they bring in like other research that they've done. And when you like kind of find out what J.K. Rowling was pulling from, things started to make sense. And they yeah. were wrong about a lot of the <laughs> <laughs> things that they thought were going to happen because even she changed them. But yeah, um, I love stuff like that. Yeah. It's really fun to read that stuff after the fact, too. And you're like, oh, I know so m- I'm living in the future. I know so much more than you yeah. do. Um, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> so we go from that description and then there's a really important line. So important that here in my Kindle, uh, Amazon has let me know that over 1,500 people have highlighted it. This one sentence here. So they see Aslan, and then C.S. Lewis writes this. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. And he just goes on a little bit further. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. For when they tried to look at Aslan's face... They just caught a glimpse of the golden mane and the great, royal, solemn, overwhelming eyes. And then they found they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. So this is a pretty big theme throughout the book, right? Like we hear about um, Mrs. Beaver says, you know, the kids are like, wait, so he's a lion. Like, is he good? And, or, oh, man, what's the line? We should totally know this. Um is he safe, right? That's is, he, is he quite safe? Yeah. And then, so, well, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, right? Yeah. And so this is kind of that, this is, this is, this is that same thought. And I've been kind of wrestling with, well, I mean, what does this really mean? And a lot, obviously we know that, that we can kind of pull from some of C.S. Lewis's other writings and looking at this like, well, Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. And that's kind of where this theme is coming from. So I was doing some research on this, and I came across an incredible article um, written by Louis Marcos, who is a professor at Houston Baptist University. And I'm, I'm definitely going to link this article below. And I want to give him credit because I'm going to read a, a couple of actual paragraphs from this article. Um, so these are not my thoughts. These are um, Professor Marcos's thoughts. And he was writing in um, 
uh, on the Gospel Coalition's website, and the title of the article is Thinking About Aslan and Jesus with C.S. Lewis. It was published uh, back in 2012. And he makes a couple of really, really profound points. And I actually came across this article quite a while ago, like when we were first even talking, we hadn't even started the show yet. You and I were just talking about what it would look like if we did this. And are, you know, will there be enough ideas? Do we know enough? Which I think we found out the answer is no, we don't know enough, but yes, we still can do it. Yeah, but that's the whole uh, point. <laughs> and I came across this article and this was one of the articles that was like, oh my goodness, I, I want to do this show. I want to dive into these ideas. And I've played around with the, you know, when do we introduce some of these ideas? And as I came across this line about a thing cannot be good, you know, people think a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't go on without reading from this article. So it's going to be a little long, but I think it's really important. And then we will definitely kind of uh, break down what we think is going on here. So you ready? I'm ready. All right. According to his creator, and that's talking about C.S. Lewis, Aslan is not an allegory for Christ, but the Christ of Narnia. The distinction is vital. Were Aslan only an allegory, a mere stand-in for the hero of the Gospels, he would not engage the readers as he does. In fact, as Lewis explained, Aslan is what the second person of the Trinity, Son of God, might have been like had he been incarnated in a magical world of talking animals and living trees. As such, Aslan takes on a force and a reality that speaks to us through the pages of the Chronicles of Narnia. In Aslan, we experience all the mighty paradoxes of the incarnate Son. He is powerful yet gentle, filled with righteous anger yet rich with compassion. He inspires awe and even terror, for he is not a tame lion. Yet he is as beautiful as he is good. The modern world has ripped apart the Old and New Testament, leaving us with two seemingly irreconcilable deities, an angry, wrathful Yahweh who cannot be approached, and a meek and mild Jesus who is too timid to defend his followers from evil. Aslan allows us to reintegrate, not just intellectually and theologically, but emotionally and viscerally as well. The two sides of the triune God who calls us out to us on every page of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So I have, I have two more paragraphs to read, but let's, there's so much there. Let's unpack some of that. Like, it, there's so much happening just in those two paragraphs that I just read. Uh, what stands out to you, Phil? The Christ figure part. Yeah. How so? So is he saying that instead of Aslan just being the Christ figure, Aslan is both, he's all three. He's Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God? No, I, I don't think so. No, I think he's saying that Aslan is what the second part of the triune God, which is the sun, what it would be like if it was inside of like a magical world like Narnia. It's like, well, what if, uh, what if Jesus didn't come to earth, but instead came to Narnia? Like if that, okay. like we obviously do not live in a world where there are talking animals and magical trees, unfortunately. And what would it look like if that was the reality? What would God's, the second part of the Trinity look like? It probably wouldn't be just like Jesus is now because there's, the reality itself is is different. Does that make sense? It does. So in, instead of Jesus coming to earth as a man, he goes to Narnia as a lion, and that's what this would look like. And that's what it looks like for that world. Right. Right? And I think, and it, Which I think is interesting. And again, it goes, we've talked a lot about allegory, and it, it clearly shows this isn't an allegory. Like this isn't, 
the same as Jesus. This is what Jesus might have been like in this world. I think that's that's a really important distinction. Do you want to move on? I got a little bit more. Yeah, let's go. All right. <laughs> All right, hold on. Every time a character comes into the presence of Aslan, he learns, to his great surprise, that something can be both terrible and beautiful, that it can provoke simultaneously feelings of fear and of joy. Borrowing a word from Rudolf Otto, Lewis referred to this dual feeling as the numinous. The numinous is what Isaiah and John felt when they were carried, trembling and awestruck, into the throne room of God and heard the four-faced cherubim cry out, Holy, holy, holy. It is what Moses felt as he stood before the burning bush, or Jacob when he wrestled all night with God, or Job when Jehovah spoke to him from the whirlwind, or David when he was convicted of his sin with Bathsheba, and experienced all at once the wrathful judgment and infinite mercy of the Holy One of Israel. Our age has lost its sense of the numinous, for it has lost its sense of the sacred. Through the character of Aslan, Lewis not only instructs us in the nature of the numinous, but trains us how to react when we are in its presence. When we finish the Chronicles, we may not be able to define the numinous, but we know we have felt it each and every time Aslan appears on the page. Oof, no wonder you wanted to read that. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that incredible? Wow. I mean, that's like, I, I think there's something really important happening there. I think there's something really spiritual happening there. And I think, yeah, I, I, I think we see this idea so much in scripture, yet I have such a hard time reconciling it because I forget. It's a lot of times it's not the reality that I exist in. And so I, I forget that God is like, you can have this wrathful judgment and infinite mercy simultaneously. And that, and that's so hard for me as, as a, you know, not only just being human, but I'm also, I'm pretty young. Like I just, I don't have a ton of wisdom. And so I'm still, you know, gaining that. And there's so much that I don't know that when I read this, I'm like, oh my goodness, like this is so beautiful. And to go back to what you said and kind of convicted me of about children's literature, about children's literature, how incredible that we can have, you know, children experiencing this, even if they don't have the words for it, but they know they felt it. Right. There's a great section in the book that has an example of um, how Aslan can be two different things that seem like they don't match up, but to me, it's just the Christ figure. Mm-hmm. So Aslan said nothing either to excuse Peter or to blame him, but merely stood looking at him with his great unchanging eyes. And it seemed to all of them that there was nothing to be said. So I have a note. I'm just like, that's Jesus. It's like, you're not excused, but you're also not to blame or you're not being blamed. It's just, he's just looking at him. Um, well, I think, the, I, I, I think I would argue uh, that you are blamed. Like, like he does have, Peter has played a role in that, but he's not, he's not condemned. Do you know what I mean? Like he is at fault, but he's not condemned in that. That's not where he stays. Like there's hope, there's redemption there, right? And that, I think that we're we're getting slightly off on the word blame because that has different connotations in different contexts. But that I do agree with you that he's not like off the hook, but he's also not like his life isn't ruined because of what he did. All right. So let's actually, Phil, let's stay in this spot for a second. And I actually want to go back just a tiny bit to um, 
a small question that Aslan asks when the three siblings and I love it, he calls the he beaver and she beaver approach, which is what we're <laughs> definitely calling them for the rest of the book. Um, they approach and Aslan says, Do you think he forgot? Do you forgot their names? She just didn't want to <laughs> say. I think knowing what we just talked about with Aslan, no, I do not think he forgot their names. Um, but Oh, by the way, I saw a beaver. I now know really? roughly how large they are. How They're large? smaller than a penguin. Where did you see one? At the river. Oh, really? No, I, w- I went for a walk with my parents, and there's a bridge, and we looked over the bridge, and then we saw a beaver. Oh, so this is back... Uh, oh, okay. I didn't know if you meant here in the city. I was like, we have beavers in the city? <laughs> like, <laughs> No. I don't think so. Uh, well, that's awesome. So it's how big would you say it is? I'd say... Uh, you you compare meter. it to a penguin, which I don't know how long... Come on, dude. We're in I, America. <laughs> what? So a little bit a, you, a little bit longer than a yard is what you're saying. No, I, I think uh, between two and three feet, including okay. the tail. Okay. Interesting. Um, I was so, pretty high up, though. I was a very high bridge. Okay. So Aslan asks, where is the fourth? And I think there's a pretty clear parallel to Genesis 3. So if any of our listeners are not aware, um, in Genesis 3 is the, the fall of man, and Adam and Eve have now eaten um, the fruit from the Garden of Eden, and they have sinned. And so this kind of picks up right after they've both eaten from the fruit. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Ooh, not the right thing to say, Adam. (laughs) Um, And there's two things I want to talk about here. And I actually chose, that was actually from the NLT, and I chose that, even though we usually read from the ESV on the show, I chose that because I I really like the way that um, Adam's response is framed, where he blames not only his wife, he also blames God. Like, dude, you gave me this woman. Like, that was you. And the first question I have for you, Phil, is obviously we know that God is more than aware of of where um, of where Adam is. Like the question, where are you? God is very aware of that. Does Aslan know? <laughs> does Aslan know where Edmund is? Or does he really know? Or is this is he legitimately asking? I think it's one of those questions where he's asking to bring the topic up. Okay. It's like when you, you go to someone, you're like, hey, you know that thing in the living room? And like, of course, you know the thing in the living room. It's just like, that's an easy transition um, into that. Yeah. But it's also a very gentle way. He, and he could have been like, you lost the fourth one. <laughs> and they know exactly what he's talking about. But he kind of gives them an opportunity to say something, and then he remains silent. And then they, like Peter kind of steps in and says, you know, that's partly my fault. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think we do this often um, I mean, I do it with, with children, right? Like you, like, I know that so I like, maybe I even saw something, someone make a bad decision. I go, Hey, like, do you know what happened here? And you're kind of like, I'm going to let you take responsibility for this, right? Like I'm, I'm hoping yeah. that you will make the right decision. Um, Adam completely makes the wrong decision and there's, he kind of takes any responsibility off of himself. He puts it completely on Eve and on God forgiving him Eve. Um, but Peter doesn't, Peter says, you know, I'm to blame for this, right? Like that's part, he says, 
That was partly my fault, Aslan. I was angry with him, and I think that helped him to go wrong. So, so Peter owns up to his role that he's played in this story, where, where you know, unlike Adam, which, which is unlike Adam, I should say. What, what do we make from this? I think it's interesting that he says it's partly my fault. And this is something I've thought about a lot with different things, both in scripture, but also in the world. Peter is not the only person responsible for Edmund's actions. Sure. At the end of the day, Edmund is responsible for his actions. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also, you have to acknowledge the fact that if Peter hadn't done certain things, Edmund may have reacted differently. Hmm. Um, so it's like, neither is... 100% to blame, but they're both responsible. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this shows a ton of maturity from Peter. And this is a pretty big moment. I mean, this whole chapter is is really focused on Peter, and we'll get to that in a minute. But this is much different from Peter in chapter one, who's kind of just like being bossy just because he's the oldest, not because he has earned that right or earned that responsibility or authority over his siblings. It's just, look, I'm the oldest. I'm going to tell you what to do. I think he even, he even tells Edmund to shut up, you know, and he's, he's not even very kind to him in the way that he kind of leads his, his younger brother. But here, I mean, like, he takes that responsibility in front of Aslan, who we just heard is literally making them tremble. I mean, I, I love Peter in this chapter, and I think what a great example of a godly man, owning up to his responsibilities here. I, I, I love this. Not, not perfect but owning up to responsibilities. So we go from here, Phil, or I should say this first. Do you have any other thoughts before we move on? I have a question for you. Okay. When you, when you hear Aslan, what does the voice sound like? Oh, I had actually really specifically chosen not to read any of his lines because I, I never know. (laughs) Even when I read this in class, I'm like, I don't, how do we read Aslan's voice? I, I don't know how to do a line, like a, this, I mean, I don't know how to do this this thing of being both terrifying, but also good. So I, I don't know. Um, I kind of read it just like a really serious, like in a really serious voice. But we know that that's not completely Aslan's character. I don't know. I mean, how do you hear it? And there are two things influencing this. One is what's the most terrifying thing that I can remember from being a very young child, and that would be Darth Vader. And then the lion voice was also done by James Earl Jones. So I hear it in James Earl Jones' voice. Wait, not in the... Oh, you mean in The Lion King? In The Lion King. Oh, man. I'm going to start doing that now. I've never thought of it in James Earl Jones' voice. And that's incredible. But like, you just like... It has to be a really deep... Yes. Powerful voice. That's a deep, powerful voice. That's like... That's just how I hear it. Probably not like the same, you know, menacing tone that Darth Vader would have. Yeah. um, definitely that like power and volume behind it. Oh man, that's great. I wow, I really, really like that. I I'm gonna start kind of trying to picture that in my head when I read. All and right, I'm, so so keep I'm going. I'm also curious this I'm curious to see what'll happen when we rewatch the movie. I'm in I'm in this great place where I can't quite remember what everything looked like. Like I remember a few of the characters, uh-huh. but I can't remember like what exactly the line looked like, who did the voice, are the leopards standing with his crown are they like kneeling like i are all the animals standing up like i have all these questions and i'm picturing things that you know they're never going to be able to make in the movie but i'm really excited to watch that yeah the bbc version specifically because the special effects oh i can't wait (laughs) i can't wait 
Um, so moving on, Peter and Aslan, they leave and they walk. Uh, well, let me actually read. Let's read. And Peter, with his sword still drawn in his hand, went with the lion to the eastern edge of the hilltop. There, a beautiful sight met their eyes. The sun was setting behind their backs. That meant the whole country below them lay in the evening light, forests and hills and valleys, and winding away like a silver snake, the lower part of the great river. Beyond all this, miles away, was the sea. And beyond the sea, the sky, full of clouds which were just turning rose color with the reflection of the sunset. But just where the land of Narnia met the sea, in fact, at the mouth of the great river, there was something on a little hill shining. It was shining because it was a castle, and of course the sunlight was reflected from all the windows which looked toward Peter in the sunset. But to Peter, it looked like a great star resting on the seashore. I'm just like, oh, we got to get to this castle. <laughs> it, it really does create a desire to go there. It really does. And I also think, and this might be just my own personal opinions playing into it. I really think it gives you this like hunger to be like, wait, what's out in the sea? And that's I, my favorite book is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And so just like, oh, I, now I want to know what's past the sea. You know, there's so much adventure and so much things to discover out there. But at the same time, like our story is here with uh, what Peter sees between the sea and the hill that he's standing on. Each chapter, especially when there are details like this, each chapter is making it more and more difficult to not read ahead. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, we, but you like, you know how it ends, right? or do you really like not remember? Do you have any idea like how the story even ends? I know how the line, the witch, and the wardrobe ends. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, but no, the other ones, not, you're like, no. I don't know the rest of the the stories. I remember a little bit of the silver chair and. I remember really enjoying Prince Caspian as a kid. So you don't remember like the part where they get that, like that time warp happens and uh, Bilbo and like Thorin and Gandalf come through. You don't remember that part? I don't, but it's yeah. kind of coming back now that yeah. you say Yeah, I think it. you're really going to like the part where there's the uh, the crossover with uh, Middle Earth. I think you'll really <laughs> like, um, Lewis actually released his plans for books eight and nine. Oh, good. And it's no. all about like the spiritual side of uh, Narnia. <laughs> Are you going to? I know you're making fun of George Lucas in that article again recently, but just to point listeners, actually there was a manuscript for a um, eighth book in the Narnia series. I just found out about it um, from our friends over on the Talking Beast podcast um, that's done by NarniaWeb.com, and I'm going to go ahead and put a link in the description because they kind of it doesn't seem like it's. Well, I don't want to spoil it, but they actually talk about this kind of lost manuscript. Um, from the Narnia series. So if you want to find out more about that, even though Phil was just joking and he didn't realize it's a real thing, uh, I'll go ahead and put that in the description below. So that's from our, our good friends over at NarniaWeb.com. Oh, I look forward to that show description. Note. Yeah. Um, I see it too. I can also just text it to you before then. <laughs> you don't have to wait till the episode airs. <laughs> uh, so up at the top of this hill, amidst all of this beauty, we hear Susan's horn. We hear Susan's horn calling for help, and Aslan sends Peter back. And do you want to talk about what happens there, Phil? Yeah, it sounds like a buggle, but richer. You mean a bugle? Yeah, I just <laughs> I was wanna... looking at that. I was looking at the word, and I was like, I think that would be more enjoyable to say buggle. I know. I'm sure buggle sounds like a way better uh, instrument. I would love to know what a buggle looks like. I, um, I think that if I told people on dates that I played the buggle, they would 
be more likely to go on another date. Do you think they would be like they would ask like what is that or do you just not want to – you don't want to look like you don't know something. So you're like, yeah, sure. Right. I've heard of that. That's that instrument in the uh, in the orchestra. Yep. <laughs> that That's the test. Yeah. And like, if, oh, I, I've been saying it wrong my whole life, but it turns out. Dude, confidence is key to all that to, – to anything, right? You just say, <laughs> say something enough times, just believe it hard enough and someone else will believe you too. Actually, that's kind oh. of frightening. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that is terrifying. Okay. So so Peter gets to the the tree where Susan and Lucy have climbed up and we're actually – it's never mentioned that Malgrim is attacking them. It just says the wolf and – the W and wolf is capitalized very interestingly. Mm. And I think that for us that's saying, oh, this is not a wolf. This is the wolf. And who has the wolf been in the story? It has been Malgrim. Well, l- let's talk about right before that when everyone's scattering. Okay. The, this is my my favorite part is when um, Aslan doesn't excuse or blame Peter. But my second favorite part is when Lucy was running towards him. This is from the book. Lucy was running towards him as fast as her short legs would carry her. And her face was as white as paper. That is so well communicated. Um, I just imagine Lucy, we already know that she's the smallest. She's running as fast as her short legs. They reemphasize her size, but also saying that she's running so fast. And then her face is white as paper. You know that she is just absolutely terrified. Yeah. It's just sheer terror. And that's that's really good. I hadn't thought about that. And I think those kind of small details are what really makes this story feel lived in. Like at the very beginning of this chapter as they're traveling, there's that <laughs> excuse me. There's that one small sentence where it's like oh, and Susan had a blister on her like left heel or something like that. And you're like, yeah. "Oh, that's real. Like that's a real thing." You know, you go hiking, yeah, someone gets too a blister. Too many details for it to be made up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Peter arrives on the scene. And again, I think we talked last episode about kind of the way that C.S. Lewis doesn't put too much of the focus on evil. The focus is always on defeating evil, right? And I think even in this, in here, like this battle is so short and so quick. It really doesn't, I mean, it's, it's pretty much just one paragraph um, where he fights the wolf and it's, it is, it's wonderful and it's descriptive and you really can picture it, but it's not this huge long battle scene. So let me read that for us, and this will be probably our last reading for the chapter. Peter did not feel very brave. Indeed, he felt he was going to be sick, but that made no difference to what he had to do. He rushed straight up to the monster and aimed a slash of his sword at its side. That stroke never reached the wolf. Quick as lightning, it turned round, its eyes flaming and its mouth wide open in a howl of anger. If it had not been so angry that it simply had to howl, it would have got him by the throat at once. As it was... Though all this happened too quickly for Peter to think at all, he had just time to duck down and plunge his sword as hard as he could between the brute's forelegs into its heart. Then came a horrible, confused moment, like something in a nightmare. He was tugging and pulling, and the wolf seemed neither alive nor dead, and its bared teeth knocked against his forehead, and everything was blood and heat and hair. A moment later, he found that the monster lay down and he had drawn his sword out of it, it was straightening his back and rubbing the sweat off his face and out of his eyes. He felt tired all over. That's really, really well written, too. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, pretty violent, you know? But, like, without being violent, is that making it, like, it's, I mean, it is, like, you can really picture, like, oh, like, the when everything's heat and blood and hair, like, oh, man, that's disgusting. 
but it's not in the, like it's not inappropriately violent. I feel like. Have you read "For Whom the Bell Tolls"? I have not. This this passage reminds me of a section in in there in all of Hemingway's writing. It's just very concise, but also just very descriptive. Um, very like distinct style, but it. It's just then it then came a horrible confused and then tugging and pulling and then seemed neither alive or dead. And then it breaks from that pattern of two things together and it's bare teeth knocked against his forehead and everything was blood and heat and hair. So it's like two, 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 one long sentence and then everything was blood and heat and hair. And it's just it communicates the adrenaline rush of that fight. And then it concludes with he felt tired all over. That's just so well done. And that, that like, he felt tired all over is, like, the exhale, like, <sighs> like, yeah. we made it. You know, like, it's it really does. Like, it, oh, man, I hadn't thought of it like you're saying, but, like, the kind of, it's just, there's all these short sentences and long sentences, and it's just, it is kind of all over the place, like this battle would have been between an animal and someone who's never been in this kind of fight before. Right. But it's so quick. I mean, like, there's, like, it's one paragraph. This isn't, other authors might have spent more time, and I think this is C.S. Lewis, again, the the focus is the struggle against evil, not evil. Yeah. All right, so uh, there's another wolf in the bushes. Aslan sends his centaurs and eagles to go chase after that wolf, um, telling them that they'll be able to find Edmund if they chase after that wolf. And Aslan comes up to Peter, and he does a very odd thing that ends the chapter where he – it seems like he knights him because he kind of puts the, the blade – um, with, he, he strikes him with the flat of the blade and he says, never forget to wipe your sword. And that's like where the chapter ends. And, um, even before then, you know, he stops down he had, Aslan tells him he has to wipe it. And then again, he reminds him at the very end of the chapter, what do you think this is about? Is this something that you and me reading it in 2018, we're just like not familiar with some of the customs here. Is this something that C.S. Lewis would have been familiar with, or is this like a Narnian custom? I think they still had guns when Lewis was writing. No, no, but he like studied this stuff. He was like he he obviously had a lot more knowledge about. Um, so I mean, he's pulling from so many different mythologies and from the Middle Ages and just all these things. I'm not saying that it's something that people were doing in his time. I'm saying right. that he just was an expert uh, in this field. And so is this, is this something that we're just not picking up on? Well, I have a I have a clue to it. Uh, do you know one of the longest things that Lewis wrote? Um, no. Do you want me to take a guess? I don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, till we have faces is pretty long, but I don't how know if long? it's. Just, I don't know how long. <laughs> it's, it's more than a hundred so, pages. <laughs> yeah, he he wrote English literature in the 16th century, excluding drama, and it's like 700 pages. Uh, okay. Michael Ward in the Narnia Code was talking about it, and he says that it, he described it as a doorstop. Like, it's really, really big. Um, I'm sure that's how every author wants their books remembered, like, on the back of it. Like, it's a great doorstop if you get tired of reading it. Really good paperweight. <laughs> yeah, so I think that this most likely would be something that is from, you know, literature in the past that Lewis is reading or just him, you know, dreaming of a different time sure and that must have been a thing like you don't want to walk around with a bloody sword and it gets all caked and stuff and there's wolf hair and but i also wonder if it means something deeper to aslan like you you clean off your sword afterwards because it's not all about like the blood and guts and, and gore um there's something about like resetting and you don't 
maybe fantasize about killing or I'm yeah sure. it's interesting i hadn't think? i hadn't thought of it like that i like that a lot i'd also love to hear if any of our listeners have any ideas on what's going on here reach out to us on twitter or through email um, or facebook you know whatever you like to communicate through best because i'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this i know this was something this was always like a discussion in my house growing up when we ever we'd read this like my mom and my sister and i would talk like what is i remember my mom always like asking me what does it mean and I always felt like she knew but wasn't telling me. And now I'm like, as an adult, I'm like, I wonder if she also didn't know but was just, you know. <laughs> she was hoping you knew. <laughs> I don't know if she was hoping I knew but just getting me to think about it but not necessarily having the answer, which is, you know. Do you uh, think that she's listening right now? I don't I don't know if she listens to right now as we record. No. Uh, when the yeah. episode's released. I don't Unless know. Unless she worked for the NSA. Uh, no. <laughs> um, she, uh, I don't know if she listens. So I'll have, to, I'll have to share this with her. I'm not sure if she's a listener. Well, if she is listening and she does know, if she could just please call in. Yeah, that'd be great. We we actually, we should do that, Phil. We, does she have your number? She has my cell phone number, which I'm not going to give on the show. We should get like a, a Google voice number. So maybe for next episode, we can have that set up. And if, if anyone wants to call in, we can do that. Yeah. And by the way, we really do love uh, getting listener feedback. It's really fun to read through. And yeah. uh, we'll do another listener response post soon yeah we should do that soon we've gotten um we really appreciate we get um some feedback and some words from our friends over at the eagle and child which again if you are not listening to that podcast it's a wonderful show um, where they go through c.s lewis's right now they're in mere christianity they're one going they've been going one chapter at a time well i don't know we're recording this quite in advance so right as of this recording they're going through uh mere christianity and uh, we also got an email from a listener um bethany who is who just gave a lot of um, just positive feedback, and so guys, we we really appreciate that, and, and thank you all so much because uh, it really means a lot to us, and we're we're glad to hear that that people are enjoying the show. So thank you all for doing that. We would love to hear more from y'all, especially with ideas and your thoughts too, um, as well. Is that a good place to end it? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. All right. Well, um, in the next chapter, we will be on chapter thirteen deep magic from the dawn of time and in this chapter aslan and the white witch make a deal and to prepare go look at chapter 13 in a printed book and look at the illustration it has aslan and the witch and it's hilarious <laughs> what is hilarious oh, i'll stop we'll we'll talk about it on the next episode i can look forward to why you think it is a hilarious illustration <laughs> Uh, let's hope we remember <laughs> I think we will I'll make a note on, on our notes uh, so if you would like to uh, follow us more into the world of Narnia you can do so on our Facebook and our Twitter pages you can also email us at thenarniapodcast at gmail.com we love like we just said before we really do appreciate your thoughts your ideas your insights um, on what's going on in the book we'd love to hear what do you think's happening when Aslan tells Peter to, to never forget to wipe his sword he tells him twice so why is that we also appreciate the reviews we've been getting on Apple Podcasts. Um, we, while it's really nice to hear your 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 thoughts and positive feedback, we, and we do appreciate that, it's also just really helpful for the way that Apple has their um, like algorithms. It helps other people find the show the more reviews that we have. So if you have a second, that'd be really helpful for us for you to just go uh, hop onto the podcast app and do that. Um, also, make sure you subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app so you can wake up every other Wednesday with a new episode. Our show's themes were created by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work in the link's description. Thank you all so much for listening with us, and we'll be back next time with Chapter 13. Mm-hmm.